I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There have been times where I have said, I don't think you should be making that joke at the expense of Asian people. And now I kind of want to move into this new domain where it's like, I need to do this for as many people as I can, just in terms of like people who are marginalized, where it's like there's a joke that is, you know, harmful to a group of people that have nothing to do with the person making the joke. Like, that is the thing that, like, I have to sort of try and be vigilant about. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. Yes, that is Bo and Yang. You just heard the cast member from SNL, the podcast legend from Last Culturistas. Overall queer legend in the making. So excited that we have him with us today. So I was reading the horoscope for this month by a famous astrologer, uh, Jenny Nicholas, and she was saying that the energy that we're in right now could remind us of the energy eight years ago. And I love when astrologers make these like weird connections because I'm like, that makes no sense, but sure. (laughs) Um, And I was like, wow, that makes sense because eight years ago was really when I was thinking to to try stand up more seriously. Um, I know that eight years ago you did your first open mic. Yeah. It's going to be eight years to the day soon. Yeah. On Cher's birthday, May 20th. Did Chani give us anything to work with? (laughs) Yeah. It's about, it's about actually learning from what worked and what hasn't worked from that sort of leap of faith that could have happened eight years ago. Um, I think for me, that's definitely when I was, I was still a TV booker. I know it sounds fancy, but if it's not what you want to do, it's not what you want to do. Right. You know, I want it to be booked, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I started performing in 2015, one of the first people I found was you. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hi. And, um, and we actually this month started, actually the day this episode comes out, we did St. Celine the first time. It's oh our fifth God. anniversary That's right, crazy. Now. right now. Right <laughs> now. <laughs> Feels like a hundred years. So anyway, St. Celine was this like queer roast cabaret drag comedy music extravaganza that we did about Celine Dion. We always talk about it. I mostly talk about it so people have FOMO if they yeah, missed it. That still remains one of my favorite nights of comedy ever. The very first time that we did it, when we had no idea what to expect, the place we did it at the Wiggle Room, it was jam-packed to this day. It's one of the most incredible energies I've okay. ever felt. It's five years of us. I'm just realizing <laughs> it now, Trana. So we found each other. Um, I was doing open mics at the time. You were you had been doing it for longer, so you were already doing sets and you were invited a lot to do sets, which is yeah. always a goal that you have when you start out in, Definitely. in comedy. Um, but it was hard for me because I knew that the clubs were just like straighter spaces. Um, it's very interesting because I felt I was adjusting my masculinity depending on the space I was in. If I was in a, in a oh. club, I would just 
act more manly. It's stupid. For me, it was the opposite. Sometimes when I look back on when I first started around 2013, like I was going to these extremely straight heteronormative spaces and I was wearing like sequined mini dresses and like full on like hyper feminine glam. There are these amazing videos of you because there were a few contests back in those years that you did. (laughs) And you're like, you're, it's like straight up as JP circa like 99. Yeah. I. You're like hosting the VMAs in your head. Exactly. (laughs) And that was my mentality was that I didn't give a shit about the space that I was in. I always took my five minutes and made them count because they were important to me at that time that you're describing like 2013 to even 2016, almost 2017. There wasn't that much queer comedy happening, you know, but we found we it's corny, but we found our family. What I think is really cool in regards to that finding of family within comedy is that It was happening in every city that has a comedy scene and it was happening very organically and it was happening collectively. And the changes that have happened are very real. Yeah. You know, it's like we collectively as a queer community within the comedy world really decided to take up space and we are holding more and more of that space. And I love it. And I love that straight guys hate it. And I feel that when Bowen was casted on SNL as the, I think he's only the third gay man ever. Open anyway. First Asian American, just like, just like queer and visible and smart. So I think for me, it was that feeling of, wow, he's one of ours who who made it. Our next guest, a very funny writer, actor, and comedian you know from his work on Saturday Night Live. Please welcome to the show, Bowen Yang, everybody. Welcome to the show, Bowen. So no stigma. If you have no idea who we're talking about, let's just set up who Bowen Yang is. So Bowen, among many things, is a podcast superstar. He's the co-host of the very popular podcast, Les Culturistas with Matt Rogers. Of course, Bowen is also on SNL. He was hired as a writer in 2018. He joined the cast in 2019. And since then, he has given us so many legendary queer moments on one of the straightest institutions in comedy. There's the hilarious spoof on the It Gets Better campaign. After high school, I really learned to love myself. I finally stopped getting bullied by straight people. Then I pretty much immediately started getting tormented by gay people for my taste in music, I think is why. The holiday sketch with Kristen Wiig and Dua Lipa. Baby, listen, I ain't coming home tonight. Boy, stop. Here we go with this mess again. I mean it. I got work. Don't wait up. Is that right? And of course, the iconic impersonation of Fran Lebowitz. Here we are. How you doing, Fran and Marty? It's an honor to have you both here. Please, I've been so bored at home. I was about to get married to my cufflinks. (laughs) And I think the one that is closest to home for us is the notorious sketch that he did called Bonjour High, which was like a Quebec morning talk show that, of course, got a lot of people in Montreal excited and riled up, and some people were furious. 
Bonjour, hi! Welcome to Bonjour, hi! French Canadian morning news show live from Montreal. Montreal, the best parts of Canada and the worst parts of France. My name is Jean Laurent or John Larry. Today we have with us our colleague from the South. He is an American journalist. Please welcome from Detroit, Michigan, Jean-Fred. Uh, merci for having moi. <laughs> uh, but my name is actually Fred. Correct, I said Jean-Fred. Nope, just Fred. Ah, bon, please welcome Jean-Fred Desjardins. Here we go. Bonyang, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Chosen Family. Thank you for Family. having me. Thank We're you. We're so you. excited. I'm so excited. This is my debut on the CBC. Really? Are you kidding me? I think so. <laughs> they have oh, no, chased I you? Well, they will actually, no, you know, you know what happened after we did Bonjour High on SNL? Um, and someone did reach out from CBC. They were like, can, can he hop on an interview? And I, my, the, the publicists at, at NBC said, maybe not the best idea just because people seem to be very upset. And so <laughs> it's best not to like upset people even further. Do you understand why people were upset? I know all the reasons why people are upset. <laughs> and I own up to all of them and I apologize deeply. I already Don't apologize. apologize. <laughs> Montrealers love when Montreal is spoken about, especially in something American. But the irony yeah. is that as soon as we get yeah. that acknowledgement, we're immediately critical of it. We're like, they <laughs> didn't get it right. It's not good enough yes. for us. But your sketch was so good. It was silly. It was like fully a caricature that was completely inaccurate. I understand anyone being upset or taking issue with it but it's i'm the same way and anytime someone acknowledges me anytime i get any attention if it's if it's even like slightly different from the kind of attention that i want then i get very upset but i think one thing that a lot of people don't know about you is that you actually lived in quebec in the I 90s did. so there's a did. there is a real connection i, I grew up in, what happened yeah. well I, I i grew up in i grew up in brossard brossard and um I spoke French better than I spoke English. I like, I spoke French better than I spoke Mandarin. I like, it was, I was truly like one of y'all and, <laughs> and then got plucked away. But you, wow. how did you end up in Brossard? Like, cause Brossard was just a pit stop between uh, Australia and Denver. Well, it was, I, I I like grew up in, I grew up in Brossard in, in Quebec thinking this is going to be where I live forever. Um, in that naive childish way but i it it was just my dad's moving job to job and then we it was it was truly a heartbreaking moment when i had to move when i was 8 years old one reason why the why bonjour high this sketch really struck a chord in quebec is that it's a huge political issue here i being, understand being yes. greeted <laughs> in English, in businesses, and people can really go up in arms about it. And then there's this, yeah. this like, and then there's this also mentality about Montreal. It's like Montreal is, is like separate from the rest of Quebec. Like, so you mm -hmm. really tapped into something so specific <laughs> and I, I was living for it. How was it like selling this very Canadian sketch to, to the team? Well, um, I was not, I was a co-writer on it with, um, my very good friend, Sudi Green, who has relatives and family who lives, who live in Montreal. And then Celeste Yim, um, who's this wonderful comedian and playwright from Toronto. Um, but they also have some cultural experience with Quebec and Montreal. I mean, like, I, I like, I remember asking them like, Hey, do they still have like St. Hubert's there and stuff? Like it was just <laughs> like that kind of thing. 
So St. Hubert is our, our national rotisserie chain. Yes. Do you have a memory <laughs> of that? I do. Oh my gosh. It was, it was truly like, I, there were so many days where we, my sister and I begged my parents to take us to St. Hubert's because my parents, I, I grew up in a very austere family, especially around that time in Montreal when we didn't have a lot of money, but where we didn't really eat out at all. Um, so anytime we went to a restaurant, it was a huge deal. We would do it like maybe four times a year. And, you know, one of those times we begged, begged, begged to go to St. Hubert's. I, only, I probably only, only went there once in my entire like seven years of living in, in Montreal. Isn't that so sad? <laughs> As a child to be like deprived of St. Hubert's. When you come back, whenever that is, we're taking you to St. Hubert. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm so itching to come back. <laughs> well, we're itching to have you back. And I mean, what's so interesting about your childhood too, is that so much of what was happening was leading towards SNL. I mean, famously, everyone knows that when you were in high school, you were voted as the most likely to appear on SNL. And then it actually happened. And I'm just curious about what about that goal made you feel like it was something that you could really achieve? Like, did you ever have any doubts about it or was it just so clear in your mind that you were going to do that? It really, I mean, it, the, to be honest, it wasn't clear just because, um, just because I, I, I kind of was, I mean, growing up in Montreal, we would go to Just Pour Rire every week, uh, every year. And that was like my first like exposure to what like, different kinds of comedy sort of converging at the same point looked like. And I was, it was just so thrilling. Um, we never got to like go into shows. I mean, maybe, maybe we went into some shows, but it was, most, it was mostly the street performers. I just feel that like I, as a kid, like really sort of lit up over and then moving to the U S and then them being introduced to SNL there. I, I never even like thought this is, I'm going to, I'm going to call my goal on that place and be like, I'm going to work there someday. But yeah, I just, I remember like hitting all of these different moments in my like <laughs> early quote unquote, like career thinking, oh, well, if, if this is the last thing, if this is the peak for me, then that's great. I remember like being at Just for Laughs when we met the three, the three of us met, um, what is it? Two, three years ago. That was like a full circle moment for me where I thought, wow, this place that I came to as a child, like the place where I discovered my love for comedy and performing like just to be able to come back here as a performer in this capacity meant everything so yeah i think the goalposts keep shifting but it was never this like thing this like white whale of like i'm gonna be on snl someday and i, I want to paint the picture of that summer so summer of 2018 you mm -hmm. at the time are an uh kind of up and comer in comedy you're doing the podcast with matt um, and mm -hmm. then you come to Montreal to for Just for Laughs. So you do a taping of the podcast, but you also do a public performance. I I believe it's the gayest outdoor performance that there <gasps> ever was, and 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 plus is our outside. Um, and and you sang, and I remember you and and Matt, and I think the people who were on the show that night sang a Celine song, and then the whole crowd just burst like singing with you. It was a beautiful memory. It was a beautiful... I think we we sang That's the Way It Is. Um, and it was, yeah, it was truly, truly a wonderful... Another full circle moment where I was like, oh, wow, I'm like doing... I'm, 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 I'm belting Celine Dion in front of a bunch of French Canadians. Well, it's time to say au revoir bye to Bonjour High. We're sad to go, but that's the way it is. Don't get wrong, Yaffe! Never 
favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. People get to Bo and Yang in so many ways. People get to you through SNL. People got to you through the podcast, um, Last Culture Says with Matt Rogers. Um, people also need to watch uh, Nora from Queens. Oh, my God. Yes. Which is so good. Oh, thank uh, you. Oh, my God. You were so good. Thank you, I'm, okay, Bowen, as just a side note, yes. it's so sweet to see your reaction to a compliment. And I'm oh. like... I'm just, do you not feel the love on a regular basis? Like you are so beloved, but every compliment, you you seem so genuinely touched and surprised by it. Are you not feeling the love on a daily basis? You are so loved. That's so nice. I, of course I do, but it, I feel like it doesn't <laughs> take away from, you know, uh, an individual moment of like kindness or like someone saying something that's so nice. And so I, it's not, it doesn't, it never dulls um, over time. So it's just so nice when anyone says something like that, especially with the people. That's so very sweet. surprising. Is that you're you're a New Yorker and you're not jaded? I think I, that's, <laughs> I think that's the part that's so surprising. That's very. That's an honorable. That, that's that's an honoring. That's what, what am I trying to say? That's such an honor to hear. Um, <laughs> so I I love to look at the scenes where people came from, you know, and yes. I, it's something, you know, I love culture and it's fascinating to me to think of certain scenes, to think of Paris in the twenties, of course, and seventies mm -hmm. London and the New York Vol Vogue ball scene in the eighties. Um, and to me, I think the Brooklyn comedy scene of the 2010s pre-Trump will kind of, you know, it's, it's where the flip, the queer revolution of comedy really happened first. And at the center of that was your brilliant um, musical sketch comedy troupe, Pop Roulette. Oh, with, thank you. <laughs> with, <laughs> with Matt and Dave Mazzoni and Sudi. Sudi, and all, it, yeah. Um, and I think we need to elevate that, that story because it's, it's kind of like this really incredible origin story. Um, so so for, for people who don't know, yes. how did you all meet? How did it all get started? Draw us a picture of... What, what it was like, who you were at the time, how you met these folks. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I haven't, I haven't really, I haven't talked about Pop Roulette in a while. And this is, this is great because, um, uh, I, I came to NYU, you know, thinking I'm going to do the pre-med thing, but I also want to, um, keep up this sort of activity going that I did in high school, which was, you know, improv. And so, um, didn't realize it at the time, but was much more invested in that part of my life than I was anything else, certainly more than my academics. And so, um, I, I was, uh, on the improv group at NYU, um, with, uh, Anna Dresden, who was two years above me. So, um, I was in that group. Meanwhile, Sudi and Matt were in the sketch comedy group and, um, it was Hammercats and Dangerbox. Those were the, the, the group names, but then we both, and then they were, and then, and then at that point we had just sort of like cross pollinated and just sort of like gotten to know each other and um 
became friends through like similar sensibilities. And it was very clear that Matt was gay and that I was also gay by sophomore year and that we all like had the same shared vocabulary on things. And then uh, after we graduated, uh, Matt and Sudi had sort of gotten together some other friends from, uh, you know, the, the theater school and just started doing these musical sketch sketches, which was sort of heavily inspired by like, you know, Lonely Island, like Andy Samberg, but like with like, you know, but lower budget, obviously, and like, you know, a layer of queerness or a layer of like millennial cynicism. Um, but then I was brought on, you know, a couple years into their sort of formation just because I was like going through this identity crisis of being like, I don't think I want to be a doctor anymore. And oh my God, have I made a huge mistake? What do I do? Um, so yeah, I mean, I I remember Matt, we weren't as close of friends as we were back then, but Matt took me out to lunch one day and said, do you want to be on this group? And I said, I would be thrilled. And then from there, we, we you know, we were together for like four years after that. And then that sort of parlayed nicely into me and Matt having this podcast. And then Sudi got hired at SNL when she was only like, you know, 23 to write. Um, so it felt like, you know, the, the, the tide was rising. But at the time, there was really no like realization or awareness of like, oh, wow, there's something happening with like all the queer comedians that we're seeing come through. It just felt like, oh, this is just like a little microcosm of what's happening, hopefully around you know, the Western comedy scene, right? Where I feel like that's true. Like, you know, there were like there, and then all these, you know, and then you'd hear about all these queer comedians out of San Francisco or, or, you know, like Montreal or LA or, you know, like Chicago. And so I feel like it's sort of been this groundswell everywhere that there is comedy, that there is a comedy scene. I mean, you getting to become a writer and then especially when you became part of the cast, it was a big deal on so many levels for so many different people because, you know, as we know and as has been spoken about a lot, historically there haven't been many Asian cast members on SNL. There haven't been many openly out cast members either. As we all know, when sort of anyone that's coming from a marginalized community is put in the spotlight in such a big historical way, there's this expectation for you to educate people on sort of what your experience has been as part of these groups. And I noticed on Instagram, I think it was just yesterday, um, and I hate to read mm -hmm. what someone else has written, but I'm just going to read what you wrote. If and when I'm playing a hot Asian fag on TV and you don't know what to do with yourself, consider shutting the fuck up and writing a letter to your fucking grandparents. And if you want nuanced portrayals of Asian queerness in a sketch comedy show, have fun ordering chrysanthemum tea at McDonald's. And I'm guessing that was a way for you to let out a little frustration. And I'm wondering... Oh, just a little. <laughs> just a little. And is it related to that idea of expectation when you are someone from a marginalized community who succeeds sort of against all odds. I, for a very long time, uh, tried to go about it um, in a way uh, in a way that was like, well, I'll never satisfy uh, the universal global set of expectations because it, it's, it would just be so overwhelming. But then I think over time, I realized that even by like putting that sort of shield up on it, like it's still, 
it's you're still in a state of like clenched sort of tension I kind of felt a little bashful after I posted it because it was just like, oh, it was like a very vulnerable thing. But I, I mean, but I don't have any regrets for like expressing that just because I'm, I go, you know what? Like, I don't think anyone else is going through this specific set of <laughs> of like forces mm-hmm. in particular. And then I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to change too much about what I do, but I do want to put people on notice by being like, I'm aware of like the dog shit takes that are out there. We spoke to Bowen weeks before the murders of the Asian American sex workers that happened in Atlanta. Already at the time, there was violence, there was hate against uh, the elderly in the Asian-American community. Recently, Bowen took a moment on Weekend Update to address anti-Asian hate in a way that was so brilliant and powerful. Take a listen. Look, I'm just a comedian. I don't have the answers, but I'm not just looking for them online. I'm looking around me. In Mandarin, there's a cheer that goes, which basically means fuel up. I don't know what's helpful to say to everyone, but that's what I say to myself. Fuel up, do more. It's the year of the metal ox, which basically means a car. So everyone get in, buckle up. It's no pee breaks. We ride it on, grandmas. Um, and one other sentence you, you've used on social media to describe the sort of environment where you are creating this work is the the prairie of the white gaze. That is, uh, oh, uh-huh. and white gaze, <laughs> G-A-Z-E, that is comedy or television in your country. I guess like I just want to express sort of appreciation because I know it's such a mental charge to always have that in a way that like the straight white cis like cast members or straight, you know, they don't have that mental charge in that same way on the show. That's and it's really fine. It, it's, no, it's, it's what yeah. it is. It's what it is. Right. And I, they're great at what they're doing. Of course. Of course. Um, mental charge is a great way of putting it. I, the, the last thing that I want to sort of like imply in anything that I say is that like, I have it harder than, or like I, I'm, I'm resentful of the fact that like, um, other people aren't dealing with this, but, um, but it still doesn't take away from the fact that like, this is something that like kind of weighs on you. Um, And yeah, but I think this is like a conversation that a lot of people are having where any marginalized person will think, wow, I can't tell if I'm self-tokenizing, if I am, if I'm being of service rather than being of utility. Like that's, that's like, that's like a big difference, like a very subtle difference that I've noticed. Um, which it's just like it's like different. Like you're, if you're being utilized, then like you are you are like executing on something. But if you're being serviceable, that means you are kind of just a tool to just like I don't know, like get a punchline in or something. You know, I, I think as queer people, we are very used to accommodating. Yeah. <laughs> um. Even now, where like everyone is much more vocal and um is able to express their desires. Um, in an ethical way, like there's still, there's still such a, there's still, I don't know, I don't know. I, I I can't speak for everyone, but I feel like there's still this like 
programming in all of us where it's like, oh, we should, we should just be of use to other people, to like some hegemonic like way of life or way of thinking. And I feel like we're, we're slowly starting to move away from that. What you're describing, that sort of uncertainty and maybe even confusion sometimes about, you know, how you're being used and what you're being asked to do. Do you find that that's becoming clearer and clearer to you? Like how to be able to sort of distinguish between those two things? I think so. I think it is becoming easier and it's also becoming easier for me to express any, not discomfort, but any um, point of clarity around it or point of confusion where I'm like, hey, so what Like, what do you want me to do? And then I'll get an answer and then I'll go, interesting. Um, I'm not comfortable doing that. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm getting better at just expressing that without any like fear of retribution or like any consequence to come out of it. There've been times where I have said, um, even, even in a sketch that I'm not in where I've said, I don't think you should be making that joke at the expense of Asian people. And now I try like, which I'm comfortable doing that because <laughs> I, I truly don't think anyone has the guts to look at me and say, to look look at me as an Asian person and say, no, I'm going to do it. As a non-Asian person to look at me as an Asian person and be like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going with this. I, I mean, but again, like the worst thing to be is like joke police, but unfortunately, like you have to sort of hold people to account on this. I think for me, there's this fantasy of eventually I'll reach a point where there will be some sort of breakthrough moment for me that will result in a kind of power that will allow me to say no to things that don't feel so great. Mm -hmm. But maybe some, sometimes I think maybe that fantasy of power is also an illusion. And I guess Bowen, like, you know, for so many people on the outside looking at you, you are someone who's managed to achieve so many things that people in this industry want to do. And I guess I'm curious, does everything you've achieved give you a sense or a feeling of power or more control? Or have you found that now that you're there, you still sort of feel that that same vulnerability? That's, that's such an amazing question. I feel like I do want to say that it's probably a net gain in terms of me having the ability now to say, to say that that doesn't make me comfortable. Now, I mean, now I kind of want to move into this new domain where it's like, I feel like I need to do this for as many people as I can, just in terms of like people who are marginalized, where it's like, there's a joke that is, you know, harmful to a group of people that have nothing to do with the person making the joke. Like that is the thing that like, I have to sort of try and be vigilant about. But this is, but then to loop back around to what I was saying on Instagram yesterday, like I feel like I've been locked into this hypervigilance, this like awareness of everything going on at the same time. Um, and it's not sort of voluntarily done. It's It's sort of like, I feel like I've been backed into this corner by my own like psyche to think you have to be on top of everything, which um, is not ultimately healthy, but I think it's good to like set that foundation to know when you can sort of step away and when you can lean in. And and this is something that I talk about with, um you know, my castmate Ego Wodum, and she, she has always sort of very openly said in interviews, like, look, like I'm not worried about like my legacy at the show as much as I am worried about 
um, making things easier for the next black woman who comes through the show. And she's already, I think she's already made that so much easier for people like Punky Johnson, who we just hired, you know, a, a black queer woman. And I think like there's this mental model that's being set for, for that. And so I'm trying to do that hopefully for the next time a queer person comes on again. Like I, like my dream is that there's just like seven of us at the same time. Like that would be like, truly phenomenal well, I, yeah do you think now that it's become sort of so well established to a certain extent you know like seeing all of you at snl even watching something like search party where it's just like all of these like yeah. super cool super talented people um there's a part of me that sometimes watches all of this and is like, these people are just too cool. Like it feels almost a little bit intimidating. Do you think now that it is sort of what it is that, is it a bit like mean girls and like, you can't sit with us or do you feel like this <gasps> is like, this is open to everyone? No, I, this is, it's, it is the f total opposite of you can't sit with us truly. Like anytime I'm in a new place, like in Montreal, just like stood out to me that summer where it was just like the three of us and like Mateo and Joel and um and like all these all these different comedians coming together and being like this is like a moment of like queer professional discovery when you like meet other people it's it's the total opposite i feel like it's truly an open invitation and like anytime i find out like about a new queer comedian or even like a meme account that is like specifically like chaotically queer. I think this is the best. Like this is just ex expanding the scope of like the shared language around like a queer sensibility and in, in comedy and in humor. That's amazing. Yang, well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you guys. This is thank this you is so much for pleasure. joining us. Yeah, that was fun. It was so good to uh, see your good face luck with uh, with everything and Bowen Yang. Bowen is a cast member on Saturday Night Live. He's also the co-host of the podcast Las Culturistas. And he just recently confirmed that he will be back on season two of Aquafina is Nora from Queens, and we can't wait. We spoke to Bowen on February 23rd. Session. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Thomas, what's your obsession this week? <laughs> My obsession this week is Eve Parker Finley. She's a comedian, producer, musician. And I think also with her, like the labels don't really matter because she's just like a pro at quarantine comedy made in her apartment, on social media, on TikTok and Instagram, doing sketches, songs. And I think her secret weapon is her self-deprecation. All right, everyone, let's start this meeting with an icebreaker. Oh, God. Let's go around the room and see the hardest thing that happened to us as teens. Can we do something less personal? Okay, how about as children? No. Greatest fears? No. So she's really aware of the environment that she's in. And I think it's it's like hyper local. It's like Montreal queer comedy. But I think it's the more local you get, the more of this like feeling of relatability. And I really get that a lot from her. Here's what your favorite Montreal park says about you. If your favorite is Park La Fontaine, you're probably like really chill, maybe a stoner, probably into circus. And if you are a white person with dreads, let me just take the opportunity to say, cut those off. 
I don't know how to say it. It's just not this like mall TikTok that we always see. Right. It's, it's funny because like, I I am a big fan of hers too. And I happened to be on Instagram live the other day and she came on and then she actually like joined my feed <laughs> and I was telling her exactly that. I'm like, I love that she's just so authentic. It's not like she's trying to invent some kind of persona that she's trying to sell. Cause I feel like so many people on TikTok and social media in general are always putting on this facade or, you know, just, it feels so fake, but with Eve, it feels so real. What's your gender? I only gander casually. I'm a casual ganderer. What are your pronouns? My province, I live in Quebec. You're freak. Thank you. Queer. Yes. And I don't I don't want to claim any of her fame or anything, but I have to say we did go on a date years ago, <laughs> like eight, seven, eight years ago when she was a music student. Nothing happened. But I'm so I don't know. I'm like, wow, I really have good taste. <laughs> I really can find good people. That's so funny. What are you obsessed with? I recently got the Stack TV Amazon Prime add-on. What 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 is that? It gets you all the basic channels like HGTV and you know Food Network. I got it because I needed a way to watch the Meghan and Harry interview. But it comes with this you know month free trial. And I noticed on the HGTV portion that there was this show called Martha Stewart, Martha Knows Best. And I've always loved Martha. Martha has always been like one of my, I mean, hero might be a bit of a big word, but just someone that I'm so fascinated by as a character because she is so bizarre. And this show, Martha Knows Best, is a sort of quarantine COVID docu-series of her on her giant farm estate in New York. Okay, this thing is in production. It's like, it's, it's recent. It's current, it's yeah. Not an, it's not an old show. It's no, it's old not an old Martha. show. It's, it's new. It came oh, out wow. last year. Oh, wow. And what makes Martha so funny is that she's just so blunt and she is cold and almost sociopathic. Like she also had Chelsea Handler. She has like some celebrity guests that drop in on Zoom as well. So first off, I want to start the lesson on the drink. Have you ever made an apple cider sour cocktail? Martha, I've never made anything in my life. This is one of the best. And I don't know if you remember, but there was sort of a viral moment last summer when Martha posted this selfie of herself in the pool and she looked super so hot. hot. So hot. And she's like 80, <laughs> but like still looks so hot. And then Chelsea Handler, who kind of looked like Martha recreated the Martha <laughs> selfie. Your rendition of my selfie. We became very famous because of that, Chelsea. I know. People, a lot of people thought you looked a lot better than I did. I mean, I, I, I even looked at the picture and I go, I gotta admit it, Martha looks a little bit hotter than I do at this point. Hotter? Oh, well, as long as it's hotter. Love that. So Martha had Chelsea on the show and they're talking about this viral moment and Chelsea's recreation of the photo. And Martha's just like, I got a lot of marriage proposals, did you? And I got a lot of marriage proposals. Did you get any? None that actually get to me, but do you get any that are, are worth considering? I was too busy enjoying the instant fame from a stupid selfie. That's what's wrong with me. That's why I'm still not married after a long marriage. <laughs> But again, she is not joking. She is so serious. And that's what I love about her. And I, I think this show is one of the best comedies that I've ever seen. Like I kept pausing and rewinding and recording stuff because I'm like, <laughs> this is comedy gold. I need to watch it. You need to watch it. 
You can find Eve Parker Finley on TikTok and Instagram. It's the same handle, at Eve Parker Finley. I'm sure Bowen Yang would be obsessed with her. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chosen Family. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with a friend. Seriously, please share it with a friend. And before we get to the end credits, Thomas, we have a little bit of an announcement Oh to make. my God, a dream come true. We are finally YouTube astrologers. <laughs> so um, we have a new web series with Extra called Lucky Stars. Every season, Astro season, we'll be reviewing the astrology of the celebrities and queer heroes who are born under that sign. We started out with Aries and whew, did we have fun. <laughs> Go to extramagazine.com, X-T-R-A magazine.com and look up Lucky Stars. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Ndongo is our contributing producer. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arf Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We are recording this season at Tomei Park Studio. And we are finally, finally on Instagram at Chosen Family Show. Follow us. It's a mood board. It's an experience. And that's where we share content, extra content about the episodes. Thank you all again so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. And until then, we have an amazing catalog of old episodes that are very evergreen. So enjoy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.